So if we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 12. Let's uh, read around the room to verse 14. But before we do, this is the main thought that we're going to get out of these next few verses. Both wisdom and folly, both wisdom and foolishness are empty. And attempting to build a legacy off of your wisdom is emptiness. So let's look at uh, verse, can you start with verse 12 please? And then we'll read to verse 14. Thank you. So, verses 12 to 13, Solomon says, I tried wisdom. I tried crazy living. I tried foolishness. I tried going by my feelings. I tried the party life, is what he said. I tried foolishness. He said, I found that even though wisdom nor folly really make a good way to live, if you're going to choose one of them to live by, be at least wise. Because... The fact is that the foolish person has more problems than the wise person, even though neither of them are living for eternity. So there's a, there's a key uh, phrase in verse 14. I want to throw this question out here. The first part of verse 14, the wise, man's are, the wise man's eyes are in his head. What does that mean? The wise man's eyes are in his head. That's very true. Yes. So, first of all, wisdom is, is an intellectual thing a lot of times, especially humanistic wisdom, right? The wisdom that does not come from scripture is, is mental. But what does it mean to have your eyes in your head as opposed to the fool who walks in darkness? So the wise man's eyes are in his head, but a fool walks in darkness. What does that mean? Who, which one, the wise or the fool? The wise man, yeah, yeah, the wise man is usually right. Here's the idea. If you have eyes in your head, you can see what's going on. If you're walking blindly or in darkness, you can't see what you're running into. So, Solomon is saying, I understand that neither wisdom nor foolishness is the end of life. But if you're going to be one of them, at least be wise, you can see where you're going. Um, the rest of verse uh, 14 really just talks about that he says, I perceive one event happeneth to them all. What is he talking about that one event that happens to everybody? Death. And that's the reason he says living for wisdom or living for foolishness, whether you want to live very careful about everything you do or you just want to live in the moment, you're going to die. And so, no living on human reasoning is actually going to spare you from that which takes everybody. Um, let's continue at, through verses 15 through 17. Can the next person read uh, verse 15? We'll continue to 17, please. Then said I in my heart, as it happened to the fool, so it happens even to me. And why was I then more wise? And I said in my heart, that this also is 
And then Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 17. I'll just read that real fast. Therefore I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. So Solomon came to this human assumption. This is not God's opinion, okay? Remember we talked about Ecclesiastes being an accurate record of Solomon's human attempt to understand life, okay? So Solomon came to the human Conclusion, I hate life. Okay? And why did he say he hated life? What is the main idea of verses 15 to 17? What's his main reason for hating life here? Yes, everything is vanity. Why? What's his reason he gives? Exactly. He says we all die the same. I don't care if you're rich, I don't care if you're poor, I don't care if you're wise, I don't care if you're foolish, it's just going to end for you anyway. And so he said, what's even the point of trying to be wise? Because it's just going to end anyway. So this is the human uh, aspect of what he's looking at. Uh, verse 17, the word vexation, he says, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That, term, that phrase, vexation of spirit, means something that is soul-destroying. It causes your spirit to like grasp at straws and never really get what you're craving for. He's describing the human attempt to try to satiate our desire for meaning by being the best we can be. And that's exactly what our society is trying to do today. We're trying to appease the, our, our, our lack of meaning by being the best we can be. We have a whole culture. Yes, brother guys. In addition to that, yeah, that uh, wisdom is better than folly, but both are useless. Yes. Uh, when it comes to death. Absolutely. And see, this is what our whole culture misses right now. And that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Because we live in a society that is all about self-improvement. Our society is enraptured with being the best version of you. But Solomon said, I tried that, guys. And guess what? It's all going to end for you the same as the people that never even tried. Mm -hmm. And so he's bringing you to the end of yourself so you can see that you can't make this life work for yourself. Listen to this, uh, this, this quote. I think it is very important that we... We take this to heart because <coughs> Solomon tried these things for us. We need to understand that we don't have to go through this again. This quote says, A fool learns by nobody's experience. An ordinary man learns by his own experience. And a wise man learns by the experience of others. So true godly wisdom is looking at what Solomon tried and saying, I don't need to go through that for myself. Yeah. That's why we have the book of Ecclesiastes, so you don't waste your life trying to find out what Solomon already found out. All right, let's go on to verse uh, 18. We're going to read from verses 18 to 21. Can the next person please read verse 18? Yeah, yeah. 
flavored and weary and I don't shoot myself boys want to undergo some physical vanity. Therefore I want to have the thought of my heart to dispel all the things of which I have I have. But there is a man whose labor is in me and in knowledge and in equity. Yet a man that has not given, then shall he give him for his portion. This also is vanity and so the main thought that Psalm is driving at in these verses is that labor is empty because it doesn't leave you a meaningful legacy. So verse 20, Solomon is saying, I went around from to different types of work. I tried all the different types of things that one might employ himself in. And the fact is that no matter what you do, you leave your hard work to the next generation, and who knows how they're going to use it. Okay, verses 18 to 21. What is the main idea under this? So I already told you, the main idea that he's going to talk about for the rest of the chapter is that working to leave a legacy is empty. But verses 18 to 21, what is maybe a sub point of what he's trying to get at in those verses? Sorry? Okay, first of all, work is difficult. So, the first problem with living to work is that you're gonna live exhausted all the time. Yeah. Okay, what's another thing he says? Yes, everybody who works for their family wants to leave something for the family behind. And that's not wrong. Doesn't God say that the fathers ought to lay up for the children? But there's a difference between including that in your life and living for that. Because the people that live for the next generation, Solomon says, you could leave it to a foolish heir who will blow it all. And what was your whole life worth? You're not even there to see that happen. What's some other things that he brings out in these verses, 18 to 21? Started worrying. He started worrying. What was he worrying about? What the next generation will do. Yes. But verse 21 is very interesting to me. Solomon basically says, it's not if I live to make the next generation's life better, it's not even fair because they didn't even put in the work. Mm -hmm. So he's bringing out the point of why does every generation spend their whole lives preparing for the next generation if we don't even know how they're going to treat what we've given them? Now, here, what is the main reason? Just it, it helps us think through legacies, right? What is the main reason why people blow what's been given to them? Yes. Sorry. Exactly. They don't know the value because they don't work for it. Right. That's what someone's saying. It's very simple. He's like, look, I could leave this for my son. And he could blow the whole thing because he had no idea how hard it was to get here. Prophetic. Exactly what happened. 
it's interesting, I was watching a, a documentary about billionaires mm -hmm. and their children, mm -hmm. and uh, the person running the documentary was offended that one of the billionaires gave his daughter no, no money, and she had to work for everything she got. And uh, in, in, in the documentary, they, they almost made a mockery of it, but I thought it was excellent, mm -hmm. because she appreciated what she got. And, the, and as well as that, it's the average person who wins the lottery ends up in more debt than they win. Okay, like, let, let's think of that through for a second here now. Let's say you're an average person with an average income who's playing the lottery and you win 2 million euros. If you are like the average person, in a couple of years, you will be in 2.5 million euros of debt. That's insane. But you know what it is? You never worked for it. Yeah. And that's what Solomon's saying. He's saying, look, he said, it's not wrong to leave someone something for the next generation. But if you live for it, I guarantee you someone's going to blow. Yeah. <laughs> and they're going to blow your entire life if that's all that you live for. Let's read uh, verses 22 to 23. While his knees are sorrows, and his travail great, yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also written. I think we're skipping a lot of people in the reading this. Okay, we'll go around the room again. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Several people skip people. It's okay. Um, what what Solomon is is getting? What is the main idea that Solomon is getting at in these verses here? In twenty two twenty three, what is Solomon trying to say? Okay, that's good. If you're living for your work and what you're going to get out of it, you're probably going to stop worrying about it all the time. But there's something else bigger picture that he's that he wants to get at here. I think all is just is sorrow, just working very hard, and then you you know work harder to get more and get more, and then you put yourself in a physical problem, psychological problem, and mm -hmm. lots of problems. So upon now we see that all is not full of sorrow. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And then the last step is, and you don't even enjoy it. Okay, now that's key. Because what we're going to talk about in the next verse is actually practical advice for people that work hard. Because there are people in this world who work and work and work their tail off their entire life and build up this entire kingdom to themselves and never enjoy it yeah that's right and Solomon's about to give you practical advice if that's you all right so let's read verses 24 to 26 there is nothing better for a man that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor this also I saw that it was from the hand of God for who can eat, or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? So verse 23, Solomon says, 
What's the point of working if you don't enjoy it? And verse 24 to 26 is the solution. So what's the solution? Enjoy it. Enjoy it. <laughs> is Noah wrong to partake in the blessings of what you work for? Amen. In fact, if you think that the people after you are going to enjoy it like you work would enjoy it because of all the work you put into it, you are ignorant at best. Because no one enjoys stuff like the person who worked for it. Yeah, that's true. And so you're not even giving them the pleasure you think you're giving them. So Solomon says, let me give you some really quick, easy advice. Take some time to enjoy all the work you put in. It just brings a little bit of ease back into life. And you see how Ecclesiastes is super practical for us. Because God doesn't say, work hard and never enjoy yourself. And he doesn't say, party all the time and don't work. He says, work, labor for the next generation, and yourself enjoy it too. Yeah. Just practical advice so that you don't waste all the effort you're putting in. 2 Corinthians 12, 14, we already mentioned this, but I'm going to read it out. Jesus says, for the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. What... Solomon saying here, dovetails exactly what Jesus says. He says, look, we ought to be preparing for the next generation. We ought to be laying up for them. They not, ought not have to start from ground zero if you can help it. But make sure that you're not worried about your possessions. Remember, Jesus talked about that. Why are you thinking, what, well, how am I going to eat? How am I going to have clothes to put on? Jesus said, don't spend your time worrying about possessions. Don't spend your whole life laying up for the next generation. Give them a groundwork and then enjoy life because it's short and I want you to enjoy me, not be worried. Yes? You know, it's funny you're saying all this because I've seen parents labor and labor and labor and labor till they are exhausted, never enjoy what they have for their children. And if their children don't appreciate it the way they want them to appreciate it, they get bitter at their children. Yeah. But, but it's so natural for us not to enjoy things we didn't put work into. Yeah. And so you can't expect them to. Yeah. You can expect them to be appreciative in some ways, yeah. But don't expect them to enjoy it like it worked for it. They didn't. Mm -hmm. That's just practical wisdom. Uh, what does verse 26 specifically say? Ecclesiastes 2.26, what is, what is God saying in this verse? Yes. God will give us everything we need if we are who? Because there's two types of people mentioned in this verse. So if we are who? As a Christian, I think Bible said that godliness and contentment is a great gain. Yes. It's a great aspect of contentment. That's okay. But for sinner, if I don't have the knowledge of the Bible, mm -hmm. I don't know that fast, they keep on laboring and laboring and, and pray, and then so the end is not uh, sure of my freedom. Yes. I think there are, and you're absolutely right, I think you're hitting um, one of the aspects that I want to talk about here. There's two aspects to this, I believe, okay? The first is that those that are Christians, God gives us wisdom. Mm -hmm. 
But the Bible, I think, is a little more broad than that here. It says, the man that is good in his sight. And then the contrast is the sinner. Okay, you could say it's Christians and unsaved people. Yes, I do agree with that. But you will see historically that God, that those who do right in the world, whether they're Christians or not Christians, are more blessed by God. That's right. And look at the end of this verse. What does God say he does to the sinner? He gives travail or hard work and, and empty work. What is, what is he giving it to him? So that he can gather up, keep up, build all this wealth to do, to do what with it? To give it to him that is good before God. This is exactly what happens that, that had happened and continues to happen throughout the entire Old Testament. So you will see kingdom after kingdom of people build wealth, build riches, build estates, become wicked before God, and God chooses someone else to overtake it all. And I guarantee you the same thing is happening in the nations today. And it's very politically incorrect sometimes for us to say that God actually can overthrow nations if he, does, if he, if he dislikes the course we're going. Because we want to feel bad for everybody that gets overthrown. And we understand that. people, When people die and when people are casualties of war, we are very sad about that. And rightly so. But guess what? I still believe that God is sovereign. And I still believe that if God gets fed up with a nation, he will allow another nation to overrun it. And that's life. Does that happen with every single nation that gets overrun? No. The Nazis were much more wicked than the people they were overthrowing. But so God used the allies and the Americans and all these people to push back the Nazis. Yes, I understand that. So it's not every time that God is punishing wicked people. But I want you to understand that the fact is that the wicked in the world will build wealth and riches and all these things. And God will be like, okay, now I'm just giving everything you have to someone else. Yeah. Because God can do that. Yeah. And he does it regularly. We just don't always think that God is in control. You know? We'll see things overturned and we'll be like, oh, well, that's fate. No, that's God. God says, I chose this person to inherit this. And so I think that's an encouragement for us. Because while we are not promised wealth and riches, and then I don't want to pretend like we are, we are promised this, the wisdom of God to walk in this world and the blessing of those who are righteous. And so maybe, just maybe, in some situation that you are in, where someone is being wicked towards you, God might just overturn it and give you their blessing. And God has the power to do that. Let's look at chapter 3. Does anyone have any questions or comments on chapter 2 before we move on to 3? Well, we see uh, on the what the Bill said, and the said, you know, it's a good truth. It fits them there. But, you know, this this present time now, so we, we have a country against country, mm -hmm. and then even in the country, maybe there's a rich man or that has, you know, gotten his wealth, you know, in a, a fraudulent way. And that individual that, you see, that wealth doesn't go to his, it goes to government. Government, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. it's not just I'm going to from it. So mm -hmm. we see that it was in those days that maybe it worked, not this time around. That the government just takes the benefit. It's very hard. Even with that country, any rich man, mm -hmm. the government sees his property. Yeah. Who, who, who does it go to there? Yeah, I, I agree it's with you. The government has kind of messed up the system. But at the same time, I still believe 
that over, I'll give you an example, okay? In Ireland, there were the Druids. Very wicked idol worshippers, satanic worshippers, evil people. They were our ancestors, you want to call them, but they were, they were evil people. And they got wiped out. And history looks at it as what a tragedy. All these people died. And I understand human life being sacrificed is a tragedy. But I want you to understand, God has the right to wipe out nations if they get wicked. And so I understand what you're saying. Government seizes property. It's not always redistributed to the righteous people. But I want to look at the overall concept of what God does. God may take a more righteous nation and wipe out a less righteous nation because that's his prerogative. And it, and it does boil down to everyday living. We won't see it all justified in our time. Solomon's going to say that later. He's going to say, look, not everything is fixed in our lifetime. But God does bring righteousness where he deems it necessary, and everything will be justified in heaven. Does that make sense? But I do understand what you're saying. Absolutely. Um, let's look at verses 1 through 8 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Can we start at verse 1 then, please? To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die, and a time to plant, and a time to snap up, and roots A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to lie. And a time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast in the stones, and a time to gather the stones together. A time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. Time to give, to give and time to eat, a time to keep and a time to eat the battery. A time to rent and a time to sell, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Time to love and a time to hate, time to walk and time to sleep. Now we could spend a month on those verses. <laughs> but I'm gonna go through them really fast. What is Solomon trying to say? In these eight verses. It's not for Yes. It's all about reflection. Cycles of life, seasons of life, everything has its time. But I want to park on this one thought, guys. We've got to move with the seasons. Yeah. Because life will move on and people get stuck in the last season and they don't get to see what God has for them in the next season. Some people spend their lives in misery because God brought the season of happiness and they didn't want to move. So, yes, we could spend forever talking about this, and it's a beautiful portion of Scripture. And it's a very encouraging portion of Scripture. And if you spend enough time on it, you probably start crying at some of it. But it's, it's beautiful to remember that not anything will last forever except for eternity with God. And so... The sorrow you feel today, the pain you feel today, even the joy you feel today, everything will move on. And it's part of the seasons of life, and it's good that it moves on because it helps us to grow. Because if nothing moved on, we would stay the same. Mm -hmm. And so God brings us through seasons to let us grow. Don't get stuck in a season. Move on with God. Amen. All right. Let's go to uh, verse 9. Let's read 9 through 13. Before we read it, I want to say this. This idea that Solomon's about to bring out is industri industriousness, so hard work ethic, right, is vanity. 
Wow. All right, let's read verses 9 through 13. What profit, what profit has he that promoted himself great in the humble church? I have seen the trouble which God has given to the sons of men to, the, to be exercised in it. <laughs> he that made everything beautiful in his mind also has set the wall in the earth so that no man can climb on the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. I know that there is no growth in them, but for a man who rejoices, he goes through in his life. And also that every man shall eat of that grain and enjoy the fruit of his labor, for it is the gift of God. We're going to get to the positive aspects um, down in verse 12 and 13 because they're, they're great practical advice, but. I want to look at the overview for a second, okay? I see several positive aspects of work. We're going to get to negative aspects, but I, I see several positive aspects of work in these verses. Can you give me some that Solomon says this is good about work? takes work to live, yes? So you, you're going you're gonna to have to work if you want anything. If you want to live, yes? Yes. Good. Good. Number one thing Solomon says, God gives you the grace to enjoy your work. So, enjoying work is right, and it's from God. Okay? What's another thing he says? He made everything beautiful. Good. So, the cycles of life and work that we go through will be made beautiful in God's plan. Mm -hmm. We get so wrapped up in the transitions of jobs, and whether I really like my job right now, and whether or not I'm really doing the job that is meant to make me fulfilled, but we remove God's order out of it all. Because we don't give God the prerogative to say God could make this beautiful if he wants to. So God will make all the cycles of labor beautiful in his own time. Alright, what's something else that he says here? Twelve and thirteen are really the key parts of the good parts of this. Yes. So we have permission, like we said before, to enjoy the fruit of our work. I want to say something on rejoicing in your work. It's actually okay to take pride in your work if you're not arrogant. If you're not stuck up about yourself, if you don't have an inflated view of your value, it's okay to be proud that I did a good job and I worked to get that job to look nice. And I only do work that is good. That's a Christian attitude. If you are okay with sloppy work, you are not reflecting God's character. If you do a job and it's sloppy, it should bother you and irritate you. That's good. Because it irritates God when we mess up his creation. God made everything good. And it's okay to say, I 
do good work, and I'm proud about it. Not arrogant, but okay with being good because that's what God designed me to do. I don't do sloppy work. Now, I understand. Yes, yeah. Uh -huh. Absolutely. We don't go around bragging about our work. I was saying more of a mental thing inside of you. Yes, you don't need to go around and tell everyone, see, I do good work, I only do good work, you see my work is good. <laughs> like, you don't need to do that. And you're right, the best way to address that is to give God glory for the ability to do the work. Yeah. If you say, God, I thank you that I have the strength to do this, and if someone looks at your work and says, that's really good work, say, praise the Lord, God allows me to do this. That's giving God glory, it's doing your best, and it won't be looked at as arrogant. So yes, that is absolutely the best way to handle it. Something else here, okay? Verse 13 says that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all the labor. So he should enjoy it. But verse 12 also says that he should, and to do good in his life. So not only should you enjoy good labor, but you should do good through your labor. Okay, I want to read you this very interesting statistic. Harvard Business Review found the average employee researched said that they would be willing to forego, they'd be willing to give up 23% of their entire lifetime earnings to have a meaningful job. Hmm. You know what that means? Solomon was right. Yeah. We need to do good through our work or we don't find it fulfilling. If all you do is work for the sake of working, you will be exhausted and feel you, you will have a midlife crisis mm -hmm. about your job. Because God designed us to benefit others through our work, not work for ourselves. And so if you aren't benefiting someone else in some other way or feeling like you are empowered to do something good for in some way through your work, I guarantee you your work will feel unfulfilling. Because God wired us to need to do good. You notice Solomon never ever said in all of this, find a good paying job. Find a job that can build you wealth. I understand. We need to live, all right? Find a job that is survivable. Yes, please. But Solomon emphasized, do good through your work, enjoy your work, work hard, live for the next generations. Nothing about being rich. Solomon was the richest man on earth. If he actually thought that riches was an important part of working, he would have said so. He had all these riches, and he said, look, if you enjoy your work, and you work hard, and you honor God, you're good to go. You don't need the wealth. That's Solomon's perspective as the wealthiest man on earth. So take it from a rich person. You don't need to be rich to enjoy your job. You need to do good through your job. All right, let's look at then some of the negative aspects of work. And why are we looking at negative aspects? Because even though God designed us to work hard, he didn't design us to live for work. That's different. So, here are the two aspects of what Solomon says is empty about work. He says, first of all, in verse, let me make sure that I got the right verse here. Verse 11, he says, 
Also, he, that's God, hath set the world in their heart, so that no mind can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. Here's what Solomon's saying. God has stuck us in the physical realm, and we can't see his eternal plan. And so the work that man invents will never touch eternity. Because we can't see it. We can't affect it. He has set this physical realm in our hearts. It's the only thing we can see. It's the only thing we can work in. He says that is empty because like we talked about last week, the next generation will repeat some of what you've done, will waste some of what you've done, and history will just repeat itself. So he's connecting the thoughts of generations being cyclical to what he's talking about now. And he's saying if you live for your work in this physical realm, you will never leave a lasting legacy because God will wipe it away in his eternal plan. Okay? Here's the second thing he says. God has busied man about his work so that he is hidden from God's eternal work. So it's not only that we can't impact God's eternal work, we're so busy with our work that it blinds us to eter the eternal work that God is doing. Now, there's a good aspect and a bad aspect about this, okay? The bad aspect is escapable through salvation, through focusing on working for God. We're going to talk about that in a second. Okay, so the bad aspect is we can't see what God is doing. But the good aspect is also that we can't see what God is doing because that lets him be God. If we try to organize all the events of eternity to affect forever, we would be overloaded and it would be impossible for us because we're not God. So only God can actually affect eternity and arrange everyone's lives to work in eternity. And so Solomon says we're stuck, but it's also kind of good for us. Because only God is capable of handling what we're always trying to build. Always civilizations have tried to build things to last forever. We've, uh, we as humans built the pyramids. They built the Tower of Babel in scripture. We built the Titanic. We're always trying to build things that are indestructible and will last forever. And, when, and we can never do it. Everything will break down. Everything will be gone. Everything will lose its glory. And someday, only what God makes will last. Because God is going to blow this whole world up. And so what is Solomon getting at? He's like, you're stuck in time. You're stuck making what you can make right now. But realize that actually you're probably grateful that you can't affect eternity because you're not able to handle it. God will work it out. But how do we make our last, our work, effect eternal? Because... As much as we're stuck, we're stuck in this physical realm, our spirit searches to affect eternity. We desire in our innermost being to affect that which we cannot see. We want the next generations to be impacted by us. We want forever to be impacted by us. God has placed his spirit in us so that we want to be connected to the divine. So what do we do about it? Let's look at verses 14 and 15. Can the next two people read 14 and 15, please? I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it, that men should fear before him. That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been. 
God requires that which is past. So what's what's the solution to us wanting to impact eternity but being stuck in the present? It's answered by this question. What is the contrast of verse 15? Or four, uh, 14, I'm sorry. What is the contrast of verse 14? God is supreme. God is eternal. And what's the other side? We can't add and take away from it because why? We're not we're not God, we're not eternal. Only God has been from eternity past, and only God reigns over the eternity future. You were not there when God made the earth. You were not there before God started creation. And you're not going to control how heaven works when you get there. God reigns over eternity. So here's the solution. Get connected to God's plan. You will forever feel unfulfilled in your work if you don't do it for God because there's a part of you needing eternity in your work. God built you to need to affect eternity. So if you decide, I'm going to go to work, but I'm just going to leave God out of it. I'm not going to witness to my coworkers. It's not politically correct to bring up God. I'm going to go to work, but I'll just do the bare minimum. I don't need to be excellent for God. You're going to find that a part of you is missing at your work because God's not there. And the same goes for your spiritual life. If you decide I can check off the box by coming to church, but I don't need to get plugged into the soul winning program, then I can enjoy the worship services, but I don't need to pray for them. If I can appreciate that some people are need are discipling others, but I don't need to help anyone get closer to Jesus. If that's your mentality, you will always feel unfulfilled because you're not affecting eternity. And God built you to affect eternity. So yes, in our humanness, we're trapped. We are trapped. We can only affect now. But you escape it by connecting to God who is already affecting eternity. And then your soul is fulfilled in your work. Because it's not anymore you just show up to work for you. You show up to work for God. And so this is the solution. We can say our work is temporary. It is not going to last forever. But 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatsoever you do, to the glory of God. And that's how you affect eternity with now. You do it for God who is eternal. So guys, again, I'm going to probably say this every single week. Ecclesiastes is not depressing. Ecclesiastes is practical and exciting because it gets you off of the trap of you trying to figure out how life works and plugs you into Solomon who already figured out how it works and wants to tell you. This is how every aspect of your life can have meaning if you get it off of you inventing how it works and reconnect to how God built it to work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to look at how 